Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. For Jocko Willink, becoming a Navy SEAL was just like any other career. I guess there's some people that say, I want to be a businessman. And there's some people that say, I want to be a rock star. And there's some people that say, I want to be a car mechanic. And I wanted to be a machine gunner in a SEAL platoon. (laughs) You know, that's what I wanted to be. This is Business Insider's Success How I Did It. I'm Rich Filoni. Willink was the commander of SEAL Team 3 Task Unit Bruiser. It was the most highly decorated U.S. Special Operations Unit of the Iraq War. It's where he led Chris Kyle of American Sniper. Willink retired from the SEALs in 2010 and started a consulting company called Echelon Front, which he founded with another SEAL named Leif Babin. He's become a bit of a celebrity. He and Babin co-wrote the best-selling book Extreme Ownership in 2014. He's also got a hit podcast, a line of jujitsu products, and even two best-selling children's books called The Way of the Warrior Kid series. Willing tells me that passing on leadership lessons, whether to executives or kids, is just a continuation of what he did in the SEALs. Now, on the civilian sector, that's actually what I do is teach people combat leadership and how to lead their their troops in businesses through whatever it is they got to lead them through. It's the same thing I've done for a very, very long time, which is get up early, work out, work hard, get after it. What were you like as a kid? I grew up in the sticks in Connecticut, like on a dirt road and out in the middle of the woods. My parents were school teachers, so pretty normal childhood. But I was a pretty rebellious kid. You know, I was into hardcore music, but really nothing crazy about my childhood. I saw that you said that uh, you wanted to be a commando as a kid. When did that idea enter your mind? I can't even remember when it entered because it seemed like it was always there. I remember when I was a little kid, I collected little army soldiers, little toy plastic soldiers, the miniature ones. The little green ones? Yeah. Well, there's smaller ones. These were more detailed. Like The generic green ones you get from the dollar store are one thing. I got these higher speed ones that oh, had nice. actual military units, historical units. And one of the historical units that I, ha- that I had was the British commandos. And so they had little Zodiac looking boats and little kayaks. And I thought to myself, well, that's awesome. They had grappling hooks to throw up cliffs. And so I had these little figures and I always thought some kind of waterborne commando is what I wanted to be. And eventually I figured out that the SEAL teams was sort of the American version of the waterborne commando. So that's what I ended up joining. And you were just like a little kid, like how old? Six, eight, ten, very young. I mean, I would burn the end of a cork and paint my face black and beg for old camouflage Army, Navy, 
gear and wear it around ever since I can remember. Did you have any military in your family? My grandfather was an officer in the army for 20 years. Yep. Did you feel like there was something in your personality that gravitated you towards this? I'm not sure what the specific characteristic would be that drove me in that direction, but I wanted to be some kind of a fighter. I wanted to, I wanted to fight. I know there should be some deep philosophical reason, but the reason is like, I guess there's some people that say, I want to be a businessman. And there's some people that say, I want to be a rock star. And there's some people that say, I want to be a car mechanic. And I wanted to be a machine gunner in a SEAL platoon. <laughs> you know, that's what I wanted to be. <laughs> Just the so, calling. Yeah. I remember in one of your podcasts, you had said something that the types of guys who go towards the SEALs, they might end up in trouble if they hadn't ended up in the military. What did you mean by that? I mean exactly what I said. <laughs> if you're, you know, you think about what the job that you're getting into, right? You're going to be risking your life. You're going to be shooting guns. Your job is to kill people. You know, let's not forget that because don't, no one wants to talk about that, but your job is to kill people and your job is to take the risk of being killed. So what kind of a person does that? What kind of a person says, oh yeah, that sounds like a good time to me. Well, there's people that decide that they're going to do that and they become criminals. So there's some element of your personality that has to be okay with that kind of thing if you're going to go in the SEAL teams. Does that become a problem as you're adjusting in the military? Do you have to tamper some impulses down? How do you, how do you oh, get that sure. out? Yeah. And there's SEALs get in trouble all the time. Yeah, SEALs cause all kinds of problems. They've got that you know, high level of aggression and testosterone, and you're 22 years old. Yeah, we, we, we constantly have to rein guys in. And those are the kind of guys you want. There's nothing wrong with those guys. But you know, they're, they're born to do something. Were you like that yourself? Yeah. What were you like when you first entered the Navy? I, I joined when I was 18 years old. And yeah, I was like that. When you're saying getting into trouble, like what? Like Oh, guys are getting fights, bar fights, uh, DUIs, and trouble with women, and just every kind of problem that you can imagine for a 20 to 25-year-old male human. That's That's... That's what you see. And, and, you know, as I, as I continue to grow up in the SEAL teams and I became responsible for these guys, you know, you'd see the same stuff and you'd say to yourself, okay, well, I know what this kid's doing and I got to steer him in the right direction. How did you learn that yourself? Did you have people like intervene? No, you just get older. You know, I just grew up and I mean, you know, sure people would say stuff along the way, but I, nothing that was so impactful, nothing that was remotely as impactful as just getting older and you start to see, well, what do I want to do and where do I want to go? And you need to put yourself on the right path. How old were you when you went to BUDS SEAL training? 19. What was that experience like? It's fun. Everyone makes a big deal out of it. The big SEAL training, it's push-ups, pull-ups, dips, ropes, climbs, swims, and runs. And you don't sleep a lot. You are exhausted. And people do get sick. I mean, there's, there's an 80% attrition rate. So I'm not saying BUDS is easy. It's not easy. And it wasn't easy for me. It's not some mystical life-changing experience, I can tell you that much. I mean, maybe for some people it is. It wasn't for me. It was like, yeah, we're going to be cold, wet, miserable, and we're going to keep going. Next question. It's no big deal. So do you think that outsiders kind of have this warped concept of what it actually is? Yeah. Well, they also think that they train you in some way to handle tough situations. But the fact of the matter is they don't train you at all. 
there's very limited amount of training in basic SEAL training. And they don't say, okay, listen, when you start to get to a point in your mind where you're feeling tired, what you need to do is calm your breath, (laughs) relax your inner mindset. They don't say that to you. They're like, oh, if you don't like it, quit. And so a lot of people quit and other people don't quit. There's the big lesson. Don't quit. At what point in your SEALs career did you realize that you wanted to be a leader? Probably in my second SEAL platoon, we, we had a mutiny. The, the officer in charge of the platoon was kind of a tyrannical leader and he wasn't very experienced and he wasn't very confident and he made up for that by being, you know, tyrannical. And we rebelled against him and went before our commanding officer and said, we don't want to work for this guy, which is amazing, right? It's, you don't hear about very much of this happening, but it's also... It's also something that you deal with in the SEAL teams. It's something that you deal with in the military. If you're a bad leader, you're not going to be able to maintain that leadership position. And so we rebelled against our leader, and then he got fired. And then the new leader that came in to take his place was this extremely experienced, extremely capable, extremely intelligent guy who is also extremely humble and great to work for. And all of us just aspired to make him happy and make him proud and make him look good. And when I saw that difference between those two leaders, I said to myself, well, that's important and I need to pay attention to that. And that was what sort of got me thinking about moving to the officer side and and becoming a leader in the SEAL teams. And so that's kind of a misconception that a lot of people in the public have that if you're in the military, you're just taking orders unquestioningly, you just do whatever you're told. Yeah, it's complete, complete fallacy. So you learned at just 22 that if you're a bad leader, People just aren't going to, to yeah. listen to you. Yeah, absolutely. Now, can you make it work for, for a little while? Yeah. And that bad leader that we had, we did what he said. He said, do, you know, we're going to do this like that. And we went, that doesn't make sense. He said, do it anyways. Okay. But that only lasts so long. So that's another thing that in leadership position, sometimes people, they feel like they need to force people to do things. And it'll work once. It'll work twice. But it doesn't work forever. And it actually doesn't work as effectively even right away. As someone saying, yeah, hey, here's how I think we should do it. Okay, well, I like your plan. Go ahead and do it. How did you rise through the ranks in the SEALs? Well, after that, I got picked up for a a commissioning program. So the Navy, you know, there's two different sides to being a person in the military. There's being an enlisted guy and being an officer. The basic separation is officers go to college and enlisted guys haven't. And so I enlisted right out of high school. And then I got picked up for an officer program. And once I did that, went to officer candidate school down in Pensacola, Florida. From there, I went to SEAL Team 2, and I was an officer. And then I went to college after that, and then went back to the SEAL teams again. And then when did you end up leading uh, Task Unit Bruiser? So that was after I deployed to Iraq as a platoon commander, and I came back from that. And then I ended up as the commander of Task Unit Bruiser. Task Unit Bruiser... This was the most highly decorated U.S. Special Operations unit of the Iraq War. It included Chris Kyle of American Sniper. You created this culture that you called Extreme Ownership, and that's also the title of your first book. What does that mean, and how did you go about creating this culture? Well, it means don't make any excuses and don't blame anybody else. I can give thousands of examples of illustrating that concept. The one that I started off with in the book, Extreme Ownership, is, is the most extreme example of extreme ownership because there was a horrible situation that happened on the battlefield. There was a, a blue-on-blue fratricide, so we had friendly forces, friendly Iraqi forces fighting against us, fighting against a SEAL element on the battlefield. And 
an Iraqi soldier got killed. Several Iraqi soldiers got wounded. One of my SEALs got wounded. And again, this is fighting against each other. And when we came back, of course, there's people are pointing fingers and because this is the most horrible thing that can happen in combat, in my opinion, is friendly fire death. And people are pointing fingers at each other and blaming each other. And I came back and said, you know, this is my fault. This is my fault because I'm the person in charge and I will take responsibility. And here's what we're going to do to fix it. That's another piece that people now miss out on. You can't just say, this is my fault, and then everyone claps their hands. No, you have to say, this is my fault, this is what happened, and this is what I'm going to do to fix it. Now, was your inspiration for coming to these conclusions, was this all based on that commander that you had when you were 22? It was based on that. That was sort of the what opened my eyes. But once I once my eyes were opened and you start looking around all the time, and you, you see it all the time, you see it with up and down the chain of command. You see some young kid, for instance, that gets in trouble. Like I talked about kids getting in trouble. Some kid gets a DUI and you bring him into the office and he says, well, you know, I wasn't supposed to be the designated driver. Mike was, but he, he started drinking and I was the more sober one. So it's really his fault. And you go, no, you're the idiot that drank and drove. And that's why you're going to pay for this. So you see it up and down the chain of command and you see it up the chain of command too, where something goes wrong or there's a problem. And the leader says, oh, well, it's because my team member did this. Well, who's in charge of your team member? You are. So you're responsible for your team member's actions. Own it. And if you own it, you fix it. If you don't own it, you won't ever fix it. What was it like the day that you officially retired from the SEALs? I literally gave my retirement speech and went back to the team area where I had spent 18 out of 20 years of my adult life and packed up my locker, put my gear in my van, and drove home. That was it. It's a definitely an interesting feeling. I don't know how to describe it because it's not like I was upset or sad or happy. I was just knew that I was moving on. So you weren't sad about this? I was definitely bummed. I mean, there's no better job in the world. It's, it's literally the best job in the world. And the guys that you work with are awesome. When you leave, you're not there for the guys anymore. That's the hardest thing. The hardest thing of all of it is knowing that the guys are going to continue. Guys are going on deployment. The guys are going to go back on the battlefield, and you won't be doing anything to help them. That's the hard part. Other than that, you know, like did 20 years, and I had to had to go do other things. So when you decided to found Echelon Front with Leif Babin, he was one of your platoon leaders. This is a leadership consulting firm. What went behind that decision? What we realized over time was as we started talking to people in the civilian sector, they had problems with leadership, significant problems in every different arena, in every different industry, every different kind of company. And the things that we had learned on the battlefield and training leaders in the SEAL teams were the solutions to the problems that they were having. The first CEO I sat down and talked to I was asking what kind of issues he was having, and he was talking about, hey, there's this division and this department and that division. They, they don't communicate. They don't work together. And I said, oh, they don't cover and move for each other. And he was like, oh, well, what's that? And I explained cover and move to him. It's a gunfighting tactic that you use on the battlefield. And he said, yes, that's what we need to do. And that was one of those moments where I said, this is totally applicable across the board. And every time I talked to a leader about what kind of issues they were having, 
It'd be stuff that we had already seen inside a SEAL platoon over and over and over again. And the good thing is, not only did we know what the problems were, we knew what the solutions were too. And so that's why the business was able to grow so quickly. And uh, if this was something that you weren't thinking ahead, you weren't planning for this to do, like once you retired from the SEALs, what were you thinking of doing? I was going to surf, do jujitsu, work out, hang out with my wife and kids. That didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, I still surf, do jujitsu, and hang out with my kids as much as I can, but it's definitely been a chapter that I wasn't expecting to write. When you did finally retire then, was it weird adjusting back to like home life? The way, I don't know, I guess the way my mind works or whatever, it's like, okay, new mission is go do this. I don't spend a lot of time dwelling on what the past was, and I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I can't change it. It's happened. I can't get it back. It's gone. So I just focus on what I can do today. Are there some things from your service that you can't shake? So for example, you still wake up at 4.30 in the morning to go work out. You'll go on these long fasts. You, you work out really hard. What was it about your time in, in the SEALs that you wanted to keep these habits up? They're good habits. Well, you don't have to wake up at 4.30 anymore. Why would you not wake up at 4.30? Well, what does this bring to you? Waking up early? You just get a jump on the day. And it doesn't feel good at 4.30 when you get up, but by the time 7 o'clock rolls around and you've already worked out and you've already gotten some, some work done and you've got some time to say goodbye to your kids before they go to school, it's infinitely better than sleeping in until 6.45 and you get out of bed and now you're, you missed your kids going to school or, or whatever. You, you're not prepared for the day. It's awful. So it's a good habit. So just the, the discipline of the SEALs, it's impossible to leave? No, it's possible to leave. There's retired SEALs all over the place that are undisciplined. They've moved on, and they don't care about that anymore. It's fine. I don't judge other people on what they're doing. Like, they're probably stoked to sleep in and hang out with their kids and eat breakfast in bed. That's fine. I don't have anything against that. But for me, I want to get up and go. Does your work now with Echelon Front, with the podcast, do you take the same discipline that you had in the SEALs to this? Do you have the same approach to the work you do now? Yeah, very much so. You know, with Echelon Front, we're basically bringing back, slowly bringing back together Task Unit Bruiser. And our mindset is the same, the same mindset that we had in Ramadi. And with the podcast, the same thing. It's a privilege to be able to do that. And I don't take it lightly, you know, just like I didn't take my old job lightly. I don't take this lightly. It's a burden. And I accept the burden and I, and I enjoy the burden. Is that something that you always want to have to, like you enjoy having a burden on you? You need that to drive you? I think so. And I think most people need that. I think it's healthy to have some kind of a struggle that you're going against, you know, and, and could that be overwhelming? Yes, it can be. And people are faced with much greater struggles and burdens than I face in my life. But I think it is healthy to have some level of whether it's a struggle or whether it's a goal or whether it's something that you're driving towards. I think it's good to have things like that in your life. And I definitely will do better when I'm pushed. If there's no one that's pushing me, then I'll push myself. A couple of years ago, there was this uh, SEAL, Lieutenant Forrest Crowell, who wrote this paper. It was getting passed around. He called it Navy SEALs Gone Wild. And he said, quote, the raising of Navy SEALs to celebrity status through media exploitation and publicity stunts has corrupted the culture of the SEAL community by incentivizing narcissistic and profit-oriented behavior, and that it's said that this would erode military effectiveness. And he was just very critical of having celebrities from Navy SEALs. 
do you feel like that you fell into what he was criticizing? It was an interesting point that came out. Of course, the paper that got written by the guy was on the front page of all these newspapers. And it was like, it's a very challenging topic because there are multiple sides to it. And there's, there's multiple ways to look at it. When Leif and I wrote that book, wrote Extreme Ownership, you know, it's like we went from being one of us to being one of them because we wrote a book. And no matter how much you say, hey, this isn't about me, and no matter how much the book says, well, we're doing this so we can share lessons learned, it doesn't matter. You're still writing a 300-page book about yourself, and there's no way to put lipstick on that pig. That is what it is. At the same time, for me, getting that story out there was important. Also, there's a real line, I think, with this type of behavior. If you try and represent yourself as something you weren't, that's very problematic for inside the SEAL community. So if you try and represent yourself like you were this super stud and you were the best ever and that's your attitude, the guys in the SEAL teams will know it and they will call you out on it and you will be ostracized from the community. If you represent yourself as what you actually were and you don't expand or try and make yourself look better than you were, you know, then guys look at you and say, yeah, you, you told the truth about what happened. And so I think there's kind of the line in my mind. And I think that shows a level of humility one way or the other, either you're out there just trying to say, Hey, look at me, or you're out there saying, Hey, here's some information. And I think anyone that read extreme ownership would say, this was a book that was not meant to look, make these guys look good. In fact, the book was about not things that we did that were great. It was mistakes that we made. It was lessons that we learned. We didn't learn lessons from doing great things. We learned lessons by making mistakes. And so I think that sort of honest talk about what the experience is like is considered to be in a better light. The bottom line is though, you're still talking about your old job and there's some guys that are not going to like that. And that's the way it is. And when I was in, I was one of those guys too. And, and that's the way it is. So you would have been one of the guys criticizing the SEAL celebrities? Yeah. Yeah. And again, it goes back to what I already said. If it was a guy that was telling the truth about what he experienced in his time and didn't glorify himself, well, then I get it. And I want to know those stories and I want those stories to be passed on. So I, I think, like I said, if a SEAL comes out or a military person comes out and they don't glorify what they did, they talk about what they did in a truthful and, and meaningful way, I think that's acceptable. I think if someone is out there trying to glorify themselves, well, then that's going to be problematic for sure. Your podcasts and books are very popular. You have bestsellers. Your podcast always in the top of the, the charts. Are you conscious of your own ego as you get more of a spotlight on you? Well, there's a song by the White Stripes. And it's called Little Room. And it basically says, hey, we're sitting in a little room and we're working on something good. And if it's really good, we might need a bigger room. And when we get to the bigger room, we got to remember how we started in that little room. And that's the way I think about it all the time. I'm not sitting here thinking that I'm doing anything great. I'm just, again, I'm just doing what I'm doing. And I could wake up tomorrow and people could be saying, hey, we don't want to hear you anymore. And I'd say, 
that's cool because I'm I'm doing it because I like doing it and I'm learning a lot from it myself. I appreciate that you did listen. I'm glad you found something better. What is it so I can listen to it too? As you're building out your brand, what are you thinking of when you're building a, a community around your story? In the same way that I'm doing what I'm doing, well, like the products that I'm making are products that I use and products that I need. It's a great platform because now I can make things that are that I really want and that I really use. It's not like a calculated thing of, hey, let's do a market test and ABC, which one of these is doing the best. I don't do that at all. I do no market research. I simply do what I want to do and what I think is effective. Well, why do people like it? Well, because of the things I just said, because I know that these things work. You know, we're making jujitsu gear and athletic apparel in America by American hands with American materials 100 percent without compromise that's awesome and no one else is doing that so when we're doing that people like it same thing with the supplements when i can sit there and create the supplements exactly the way i want them well then guess what i want something that's effective and so when people try them they go wow this is effective and they start using it it's just me living and and creating things that i already use and i I guess that strikes a chord with people do you think that some of your followers almost see you as a, a superhero, kind of taking this whole SEAL mindset? Oh, I, I certainly would hope not. People shouldn't think yeah. that I'm a superhero at all because I'm not. Believe me, I'm like you know, an average human, maybe slightly above in some areas and slightly below in others, but I'm, I'm a pretty average guy. And you know, in jiu-jitsu, oh yeah, I, I get beat by my training partner sometimes, and that's the way it is. And guess what? Jiu-jitsu works. And if somebody gets you in an arm lock, you can either tap or they break your arm. And, and so the choice is yours. And I'm here to train, not being a cast. So uh, <laughs> I think if anyone listens to me for any amount of time, they'll realize that you know I'm, I'm no superhero for sure of any kind. And when you've done some business consulting, have you ever had someone who was maybe working with you and Leif and maybe they were too gung-ho about things? They thought that, oh, like, Navy SEALs were going to be like overly aggressive. And- oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, w- one of the early clients I worked with, he said, you know, I can't wait till you come here and whip my people into shape. And I said, well, if you want someone to come and whip your people into shape, you should hire someone else because I'm not going to whip anyone into shape. If you want people to do things, you don't whip them. You end up with a beaten dog and a beaten dog is useless. Or you'll get a rebellion. The people that you're beating, the slaves, will rebel against you and and kill you. So, yeah, like I said, I can whip you and get you to do something right now. I can get you to clean this floor if I'm in charge of you and I'm threatening you. But as soon as you leave or as soon as I walk away, you're sabotaging everything about my plan. So that is not a good situation to put yourself in. So, yeah, some people think that. I think they think less of it now. But actually, we have a new book coming out, Leif and I do, and I open up with this. One of the problems with extreme ownership is the title because the title uses the word extreme. And there's very few times that leaders should actually be acting extreme. They should more often be balanced. And that's what the book, The Dichotomy of Leadership, is about. Because you have to balance these various dichotomies, and there's an infinite amount of them, of being a leader. Because we just talked about multiple examples of someone being too hard on his troops. Well, you can also have someone that's too soft on their troops and the troops say, oh, we're not going to clean this floor. We'll do it later. We'll do it tomorrow. And they leave. And so that, that leader is not effective either. So you have to balance the dichotomy of these leadership styles and, and end up somewhere in the middle.
and be balanced. So people aren't used to that. People don't think about that. But that's why we had to write the book. How do you define success? I, th- I don't think any person can define success. Because I think it, it all depends on what you want individually. How do you, how do you feel in the morning when you wake up? Do you feel like you're on the right path? Or do you feel like you're off the, off the path? Do you feel like you're on the slippery slope? And you know what you should do every day. Do you do them? If you're doing them, then you're being successful. And if you're doing them daily and you continue down that path, you'll end up with that success, whatever that definition of success is that you envision. What is your path? It's, it's what I do every day. It's what I do every day. It's working hard. I have five-year goals and 10-year goals. But I'll tell you this. They are also very, very flexible goals because two years ago, I didn't have a podcast. Three years ago, I didn't have a book. We only merged with Origin the, the jiu-jitsu company and started making our own supplements. That's all within the last six months and it's been going crazy. So of all the irons I have in the fire and I've got a lot of them in there, I don't know which one I'm going to pull out and ignite and what it's going to do when it ignites. So it just like being in combat, my mind is open. I'm not ho- hanging on to one plan. I'm not hanging on to a five-year plan. I'll tell you like broadly, what I want to do, what I, what I broadly want to do. Hey, I want a bunch of money. I want to be able to do whatever I want. I mean, that's kind of normal, right? I want to be able to take care of my family. That's great. I want to be able to take care of my friends. That's awesome. So those are clear, like real simple, obvious goals that I think many people have. Now you can say that, well, my goal is to be happy. Well, that's cool. I'm, I'm, I want to be happy too. The things that make me happy are the things I do every day or being on the path every day. That, that brings me happiness. What advice would you give to someone who wants to have a career like yours, not necessarily military, but just having leadership and and rising through the ranks, leading teams? Well, stay humble for one, but I think it's really important to do something that you enjoy. You know, I, I loved being in the SEAL teams. It wasn't even work. It was just activities with my friends. That's what it was. It was that awesome. And same thing now, what I do right now, working with companies, it's not work. I completely enjoy it. Uh, I don't like traveling. That's the only part that seems like work is, you know, getting on an airplane. But B.B. King said, I get paid to travel and I play for free. And that, that's kind of what I feel like. You know, you, you pay me to travel. But when I show up, I'm just, I'm there. I enjoy it. And same thing with a podcast. Like, I don't consider it work to read and learn and be able to share a story with millions of people. That's awesome. And you know what's great is I meet people in every industry. And there's people in every different kind of industry that are absolutely passionate and fanatical about their industry and those people that love what they're doing they're successful people that don't love what they're doing that don't like what they're doing they have problems they're not enjoying it they're not putting in the extra hours they're not being creative in in trying to find new solutions so when you love something and you're passionate about it you put the extra effort into it naturally you try and get creative with it naturally and you end up more successfully naturally because it's something that you care about thank you jacko no problem. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and our executive producer is Dan Bobkoff. I'm Rich Filoni. Be sure to subscribe to Success on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And while you're at it, leave us a review or a rating. It really helps other people find our podcast. We'll be back next week with another interview of Success. <laughs>